Hi there, my name is Rob Verkirk. I'm the Founder, Executive and Scientific Director at the Alliance for Natural Health International. And I'm here for another A&H Coronacast. This one focusing on the hot topic of whether and how schools might or should reopen. I speak to you today not only as a sustainability scientist, but also as a parent. My oldest son is a surgeon in the UK's NHS and he's had to deal firsthand with some of the complications from severe disease and ventilator support. My youngest two are still at home, doing their best to do distance learning. In many ways, having to learn ways of learning that we previously thought were challenging even for first-year undergraduates. And now we expect it of primary school kids. Yes, um, I do in fact declare my interest as well as a concerned parent. In this video, we're going to be looking at the state of the science, um, what children's and teachers' susceptibilities to COVID disease might be, if kids really are the super spreaders the media makes them out to be, if teachers and schools are justified in their claims that schools will become death camps if they're reopened, and if school reopenings could contribute to another wave of infection, and finally, if you're going to open school, what kinds of strategies make sense from a scientific point of view and should be put in place to protect children, teachers, other staff, and of course, the community at large when schools are reopened. So let's dive into the key science. And the first thing to note is that it's not going to be the deepest dive, and that's because the science is a little thin on the ground. And it's this lack of detailed science that, of course, breeds uncertainty. Um, and it's also interesting, given the situation, that some elements of this limited, limited science have been picked up by the media and been badly misrepresented. And that's all very well and good if the idea is to instill fear in the public, which it seems is exactly what the UK SAGE group, and that's the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies that advises the UK government, has been doing. Here's a leaked copy of the minutes from one of the key advisory groups, and this is the so-called Independent Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviours, or the SPIB group, that itself feeds into SAGE from late March. And it shows very clearly a calculated approach to combine persuasion, coercion, and other tricks widely used by unscrupulous ad agencies, as well as totalitarian governments, to instill fear in the public and make us, the public, malleable and responsive to government policy, however weak the science it was based on. The media have been deliberately engaged as propaganda agents for this purpose, so no wonder censorship of any dissenting voices has been running rampant. Um, this might be all well and good when you're trying to push people into lockdown, but it's not so good when you threw the main wave of infection, as we now are, and you're trying to get kids back to school and people back to work. Now the UK government especially faces a very reticent response from many teachers, schools and governing boards, and has become more and more commonplace for the government's position to be bumbling, contradictory and undecided. With a trail of mistakes behind it, it probably wants to limit further mistakes. And one way through this is, of course, to do what the Swedes, the Danes, the Finns, and many others have done, open schools, or in some cases, never have them close at all. You've got to use all of the science to make the most informed choices that minimizes the net impacts on society. 
And that's not just from the virus. And it's interesting, if you look at the latest figures on mortality rates per 100,000 population across the 25 countries in the world that had the highest incidence of case rates, confirmed cases, we show here that it's, there's no evidence at all that those who left schools open had the highest incidences of serious disease. In fact, quite to the contrary. All four countries, the four at the top, that hit mortality rates of over 50 per 100,000 all close their schools. So let's have a look at what pediatric or child health doctors and researchers have to say about this. Here we find it really hard to disagree with the views of doctors Alistair Munro and Saul Faust, who piggyback between the University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust and the University of Southampton. They've got no competing interests. Their funding comes from the UK Central Research Funds through the National Institute for Health Research. There's no hint at all of any Gates Foundation money there. They make it very clear that it's time that kids get back to school. And here's a few extracts from their article published on the 5th of May. Munro and Faz make the point that the original idea of closing schools came about because it was assumed and it turned out to be a wrong assumption, that kids were going to be the super spreaders, just like they are with other respiratory viruses, especially flu. We now know that's just not the case with SARS-CoV-2. They then go on to summarize the available evidence, and they conclude that kids have very much less serious disease than adults. It represents less than 2%, sometimes less than 1% of those infected. Most kids are either completely asymptomatic or they suffer only mild symptoms and nearly all of them make a full recovery. In actual fact, other respiratory viruses, and this is really important, like flu and certainly RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus, hit kids a lot harder than COVID and schools have never been closed for these other viruses. Another key point that emerges when you look at the balance of evidence is that children are much less likely to spread infection than adults. And that's based on studies of familial clusters from China and Italy. Everyone's now very familiar with the fact that there are particular cluster of symptoms, including hypertension, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and a history of lung disease that make adults especially vulnerable. But there is no similar clear picture with children. That even goes for kids who are clearly immune compromised or even immunosuppressed by drugs. It suggests that there's something else going on with children, and it might be down to their very lively innate immune system that make it harder for the virus to get a foothold, and then it means they don't suffer all the issues of the delayed response or a cytokine storm from the adaptive side of the immune system that really is linked to most of the severe cases of disease in adults. Understandably, that means a lot of pediatric doctors are actually not so much concerned about the virus, they're more concerned about the disadvantage that will face so-called vulnerable children if they're not allowed to return to school, as against the healthy kids who can. Munro and Faust don't beat around the bush. They make a direct call on governments worldwide based on all the available evidence to allow all children back to school regardless of comorbidities. The reality is that there's been a misguided reaction either from misrepresented science or early studies that have now been disproven 
that continues to bolster a view among teachers, some of the unions and governing boards, that it's way too early and way too dangerous to reopen schools. One piece of influential research, a German study, misplaced as its conclusions are, is that children can have the same viral load as adults. Well, let's just have a quick look at the study. The conclusions make it abundantly clear that the viral loads of the very young, the under 10s, don't differ significantly from adults. And that's, of course, what the media have picked up on. The problem is that the data in the paper don't reflect the author's conclusions. There's some real issues anyway with this study, which hasn't undergone peer review, like so many of the studies being published at the moment um, during the crisis. What the authors are looking at are statistical artifacts in their analysis and the way in which the variance appears to cancel out the differences. But there's a real problem with their methodology. So if you look at the raw data, you'll see huge differences in viral load that actually fit much better with the balance of evidence. Not that the media has taken a lot of notice of this. After all, why would you want to quell the fear when you've been asked to work with governments to actually maintain it? You can see this clearly in graph A for different age groups, each with 10-year intervals. You'll see much lower viral loads in the 1 to 10s and the 10 to 20s compared with the adult groups. You also see by schooling or social group in graph B, the kindergarten kids on the left side, as well as the grade school kids and even high school kids, show much lower viral loads than the adults over 26 on the right-hand side. In the same paper, this is shown again in the final graphs. Just have a look from the top left. Younger adults from 26 to 45 years old through to grade school kids aged 7 to 11, high school kids from 12 to 19, kindergarten kids aged 0 to 6, and the mature, that's the over 45s, and then the university students from 20 to 25. Now check out the y-axis scales and note the huge differences in viral loads in the young adults, top left, and the mature over 45s, bottom left, compared with everything else. Based on this paper that's been used by the media to push the idea that kids have the same viral load, it would be safe to say theirs is around one third of a typical adult. Not only that, the current data based on all the other studies showing that kids are really the index cases that initiate clusters of infection. It actually shows that they're much less likely to transmit the virus. Now, what about the Kawasaki-like hyperinflammatory syndrome that's now hit the media big time and got the schools so agitated about going back? First thing to say is the science around this isn't fully resolved. It's only a newly identified syndrome. It was in fact a UK study that created the national alert and a lot of the international attention. From the emerging evidence, it appears that a very small number of children at risk of this Kawasaki-like hyperinflammatory response syndrome appear to be associated with COVID infection. The common symptoms are abdominal pain, diarrhea, gastrointestinal symptoms, and of course, a persistent fever. Since the UK raised the alarm bells, also been noted in China, the US, and Italy. In very rare cases, it can lead to multi-system organ failure. But even the World Health Organization considers that it's a rare condition that is treatable with parenteral immunoglobulin and steroids. Interestingly, 
a study on Kawasaki disease itself from 2015, way before coronavirus came on the scene, showed that 99% had low levels of vitamin D, less than the 75 millimolar per liter, or in US money, 30 nanograms per mil of the circulating hydroxy vitamin D compared with 79% in the controls. More than that, they also found that the ones with severe symptoms, including the coronary artery abnormalities, had really low levels between 12 and 38 millimolar per liter. Sadly, the government advice on vitamin D consumption flies in the face of the scientific evidence. They're saying that you need just 10 micrograms per day. That's just 400 international units. But what we really need to know about vitamin D is that the individual requirements are linked to differences in genetics and metabolism. And we've also got to remember that vitamin D in its active form, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, is a hormone and a precursor to all our steroid pathways. It's also an anti-inflammatory agent and an immune modulating factor. So for over 30 years of evidence shows us that intakes don't correlate well with circulating levels of the active vitamin. Measuring your circulating levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D and its metabolites is a much better way of doing this. And for kids over one, you need to be in the ballpark of 50 micrograms per day or 2,000 international units if you're gonna hit the sweet spot. And that sweet spot is about 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter, or in US money, 40 to 60 nanograms per mil. And that's even if your requirement is higher for genetic or physiological reasons, and assuming there's also no significant sun exposure. You can actually double this or more for adults based on body volume. It's then particularly interesting that the kids suffering the most serious Kawasaki shock-like symptoms are those who suffer also the greatest physical challenges, require the most technological support, probably spend the least time outdoors, may not consume a lot of the foods like oily fish or egg yolks or mushrooms that are natural but still limited sources of oral vitamin D. So what does the UK's most important medical college for pediatricians, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child's Health, the RCPCH, have to say about this? They're actually probably the group of medics with the greatest insights on child's health. The RCPCH has put together a comprehensive summary document. And this document really should be the key guidance document that schools refer to. In our view, it reflects the balance of evidence around COVID impacts on children's health and, and risks very well. If you like, the 101 from this document looks something like this. First thing is that the incidence of COVID-19 symptoms in kids is actually very low, less than 2% of all cases, and it's even less amongst the very youngest groups. Kids very rarely get seriously ill, and it's extremely unusual for them to actually die, and they only generally die if there are other complications, serious complications. This risk is actually a lot less than with some other respiratory viruses, such as RSV, that's never caused any school closures. When kids do become infected based on testing, most of the time they get mild symptoms, mainly coughs and fever, or they're entirely free of symptoms. They not only get infected less than adults, just as importantly, they also pass on infection less easily to adults. 
as shown by how uncommonly they're being found to be index cases when familial clusters are identified through test track and tracing schemes. Viral shedding duration is also important if quarantines are going to be considered and the range typically varies between 6 to 22 days with an average or median of 12 days. And finally, the picture on children's vulnerabilities is definitely unclear. It actually contrasts greatly with what we know about with adults and the well-known comorbidities that greatly increase their susceptibility. The very few kids who have been severely affected have been those with very complex conditions, including disabilities and genetic abnormalities that require them to be dependent on long-term technological support. What's more of a surprise is the evidence shows also that kids who are even immunosuppressed, either as a result of disease or immunosuppressant drugs, are not more susceptible. But the RCPCH still concludes that the risk even to the most vulnerable groups isn't any greater than any other respiratory viruses. So how does all this science inform decisions to move forward, to proceed with opening schools or hold off until later? We absolutely concur with the findings of the Royal Society for Pediatrics and Child Health. They point to an evidence summary that's very useful on a really great and important website run by a bunch of Australian and UK pediatricians called Don't Forget the Bubbles. And the COVID resources section on this website is especially useful when it comes to kids. In it, you'll find a page that summarizes all the relevant evidence relating to kids and COVID-19. There's nearly 200 papers referenced there. And these are the people saying it's time for the kids to go back to school. So please listen, dear governments, teachers, unions, school governing boards, and parents. If you don't choose to listen, please don't profess to be guided by the science. In fact, a quick squiz at what's going on in Sweden is very informative. They've had no school closures ever um, for primary or junior school kids. And there's no evidence at all for any increase in community infections linked to children based on their test track and tracing. That's very useful evidence that fits also very well with what we know about how the virus behaves around children. It's a bit too early to tell from the data from Germany and of course there's the 70 cases in France which have hit the news big time and got everyone panicking again. It's hit the same old well-worn fear button in the minds of many teachers, governors and unions and even parents. But when you drill down into the data it doesn't wash with the overall trends. Here we see very clearly when you look at the 22 EU countries that have been reopening schools, there has been no spike, none. When you go back to look at the Euromomo data, you'll see really clear evidence that excess mortalities in children have never spiked. In fact, in all of the 24 European Euromomo member countries, including the UK, there's been lower incidences of death. Note the dark blue lines for 2020 in the 0 to 4 years and 5 to 14 year categories as compared with 2018 and 19, you know, since the COVID crisis began. I want to just finish off by offering some of our views on how we think, again, informed by the science, and that includes considering both risks and benefits of how kids can be brought back to school safely. For a bit of context on this point, 
you may have noticed we're great fans of contacts in, in A&H. The World Economic Forum estimated a few days ago that there are around one and a half billion kids facing some kind of restriction to their learning at school because of COVID-19. And 60% of these live in countries with partial or full lockdowns, with school closures. It's such a big issue because we're playing here with the generations who will, in the not too distant future, be running the show here on planet Earth. So cutting to the chase, here's our summary position on some of the main areas we think should be top of any list of strategies for school reopening. So first of all, it makes sense to stage the reopening of schools, starting with the youngest kids who have least risk from the coronavirus, the kindergartens and the primary schools first, as well as smaller schools. This means that in the event of any infection cluster developing, it's going to be smaller than in a larger school. It's a bit like putting your child who you just taught how to swim into a, a new swimming pool for the first time. You choose the shallow end rather than forcing them to dive into the deep end. As important as any risk from the virus is the idea of building confidence amongst the staff, the parents and the wider community. And that's also a little bit like learning to swim again. Then let's not get hung up about temperature measurement. With today's non-invasive infrared thermometers, there's no contact, there's no associated surveillance. Just makes everyone feel safer if we know that all the kids coming to the school gate don't have one of the main symptoms of infection in kids, and that's fever. If you do find fever, you kick off the test, track and trace system, and that should be run, obviously, by local councils. Temperature recordings could also be done at the end of the day, so you're doing it, say, twice daily. Regular hand washing is obviously a no-brainer. It's got to be on the agenda, but that doesn't mean overdoing it or using toxic antibacterial agents that damage kids' sensitive skins or give them rashes or other dermatological problems. You need the staff to know how to spot symptoms and report them. You also need a fully operational test, track and trace system as you use so effectively in countries like Taiwan, South Korea and closer to home in Denmark and Finland. In the UK this has definitely been a long time coming and we're still not there but we're told it's imminent. If you're going to have a track and trace system you also need to have a quarantine system. And in our view, quarantining the small number of people who might initiate further transmission in the community is way preferable to locking down the whole of society or disadvantaging those kids who don't have the space or the environment or the internet connection to work effectively from home. So back to testing. With all this talk about testing and the huge numbers of tests that are being conducted around the world, Let's remember that the vast majority of these are antigen tests. These are the ones that tell you only if you have the disease, not if you've had the disease. That's all very well and good if you're looking at the early stages of an epidemic or a pandemic, or if you're using it to track and trace new cases. But now, as we're well along the infection curve and even down the other side, we really need to see a lot more antibody testing and not just being made available privately for those with the money to part with a couple of hundred pounds, dollars or euros. Knowing if you've had the infection in the past or not, as the case may be, is really important to getting people back to work as well as building confidence. It's maybe not all 
government's highest priority if they're hedging their bets on letting, letting us all free when a vaccine finally comes on tap. But for the rest of us, it's a really important way of determining if you've got immunity. In our view, it should be available to all staff in schools and the use of antibody tests could be a vital tool in rebuilding this confidence and dispelling the fear in the community. Fear that, let's not forget, was deliberately engendered by those responsible for public health strategy. Now we're going to touch on probably the most controversial area. We're advocating for no social distancing in classes, just normal school, and we're not the only ones. We're thrilled to see Us For Them campaign building in the UK. What they're saying is that social distancing in schools and nursery is not okay. Let's see that this hashtag, it's not okay, come alive. We'll have to compete, of course, with another commonly used hashtag, schools reopen, that's being pushed very hard by those who have an irrational fear of the virus, generated again by the government and pro-vaccine propaganda machines. Talk to primary school teachers and educators. Talk to behavioral psychologists. Talk to therapists who deal with children or adults who've not had the chance of bonding closely with others around them. Well, we have. The only way to look at this is by weighing up these risks and benefits that affect all those affected from different backgrounds, different ethnicities and cultures, taking into account even the greater social and educational inequities that impact the most socially disadvantaged. Then you have to accept, based on the science, that the risks to the kids themselves are comparable or even less than other respiratory viruses for which we haven't enforced social distancing or school closures. If you're going to implement social distancing and put pupils into bubbles and force them to sit two meters apart in classrooms and avoid any form of contact, maybe not even be able to see their teachers properly, there has to be a very good scientific reason to do this. And those reasons simply don't exist. You've also got to consider the impacts of social distancing and related measures to the learning and developmental process. Plus, there are other measures that we have to guard against any shift of infection back into the community, which the science is telling us is highly unlikely in any event. And that's like test, track and trace systems. So why do we need to so severely disrupt the learning environment? Okay, then there's the potential risk to adult staff, but the plus side is the science here shows us we know a lot about the vulnerabilities among adults. So if we're gonna have shielding of vulnerable staff members in place, with those staff who consider vulnerable not returning to school while there's a virus in the community, or at least avoiding any proximity with others who might be infected, the risk to adults can quite easily be mitigated without massive disruption to the kids themselves. And while we're talking adults, I'll add that we're not great fans of masks for the general population, given the variable science on the benefits outside a critical care environment. That applies also to the N95 respirators or surgical masks that some people think are needed in schools. You've got the problems around resourcing, you've got problems of disposal and the risk of contamination. You also increase the risk for users who in this case are more vulnerable to COVID than those they seek to protect, the, the kids. The fact that the actual risk profile in schools is very low because kids appear not to be good spreaders. And then you've got the fact that masks have a big impact 
on the ability of young children, especially to read the nonverbal facial communications. For anyone interested in this, I suggest you have a read of Danny Hall's great blog called The Smile Behind the Mask on the Don't Forget the Bubbles blog site. There's a lot that can be done for those who choose to use some sort of protection, and yes, we think it should be optional, not compulsory. Visors make a whole lot more sense than masks, especially around young children, if some kind of transmission protection is considered necessary. Given the most common form of transmission involves droplets from splattering as people speak with each other. So check out how a young kid might respond to someone, say with a visor, as compared with someone with a mask. And I just want to finish up on one more point, one that's been roundly ignored by governments. What do we do to help people, both kids and school staff and parents, to optimize their immune resilience? It's far too big an issue to cover in this video, so let's look at this more as a placeholder, given there's a lot more on our website about this, as well as other videos, and you'll find the links below. But helping kids to reduce any excess weight, to be very active, spending lots of time outdoors, getting themselves in the dirt so they can develop their all-important external and internal microbiomes, eating balanced, varied, healthy, nutrient-dense diets along the lines of our Food for Health guide, and check the link for that below, taking additional vitamin D if they're not in the sun, they can't be in the sun, or they're wearing sunscreens, and keeping their vitamin C, zinc, and other nutrients topped up. All of that's crucial. In the Philippines, the authorities are even dishing out vitamin C to the kids in school. And let's not ignore the fact that with its nearly 110 million strong population, the Philippines has only reported around 850 deaths from COVID-19. Another point is what we know about kids when it comes to the power of the innate immune system. And that's that the first response side of our immune system, that's the body's first attempt to deal with any invading pathogen, suggests that keeping your, ch your child's innate immune system primed is very important. So that's our take based on all of the available existing, albeit sometimes limited and incomplete science, on why and how we think schools should be reopened. You'll find a lot more information on our website all of the content, including articles, videos, and weekly updates on the science and media around COVID, curated in one place at covidzone.org. There's also our main website at anhinternational.org. And thanks for watching. And if you like what you've heard and seen, please subscribe to our censored YouTube and uncensored BitChute channels. And we greatly look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.